0: So uh, a big uh, hello to many of you guys who have been gone for the uh, semester and are back with us. It's awesome to have you guys back and uh, anxious to celebrate with you tonight. Uh, Good to see old friends. So I've had to move twice, uh, especially in my childhood, and if you ever had to move, uh, you you relate to this. Um, My first move as a kid was uh, from Kankakee, Illinois, uh, which uh, some folks call Skankakee. It's... um, uh, David Letterman did a top 10 reasons why it's the worst place to live in America. That's, that's, that's where I grew up. And uh, true, true story. And so we were moving from Kentucky, and uh, I was a young kid, but we really had a cool neighborhood. Uh, we rode bikes together, me and several of my friends. It was like a fire station down at the end of our street. We'd always ride bikes and get sodas, and it was a really tight-knit crew. Uh, the person that uh, taught me how to ride a bike Uh, lived next door to us, and and actually uh, passed away, was hit by a drunk driver uh, six months before we left. It was just a really tight-knit crew. So when my dad came and said, hey, you got a new job, we were going to move, like there were all these mixed emotions going on in my heart. But I remember the day that we actually finally moved. And, and, um, you know, the trucks pulled in. All of my friends are sitting on my yard. You know, we give hugs. And then I get in our Ford Windstar. Did your parents ever have one of those? Um, if they still do, it's probably time to think about that. And um, so I'm sitting in the back of our Ford Windstar, and uh, my friends are all like waving, <laughs> and I just I've just put my hand on the window, you know, and you're like trying to like make contact through, you know. It's just this really surreal moment because you're, you know, even at, I was seven at the time. I'm thinking in my mind like there's a good chance I will never see any of you again, you know? And it's just this very somber, say goodbye kind of moment. You've had to do that maybe before uh, when you moved. I kind of feel that way tonight. Um, This will sound maybe weird or awkward to you, but uh, we've been studying Exodus for almost a year. And so there's like this weird part of me tonight as we close Exodus. Uh, That's like saying goodbye to a good friend. Um... The good thing is, like, the Bible doesn't move out of state or something, right? Like, um, uh, it's not like we'll never, or you can never, like, read Exodus on your own. Um, that's the encouraging thing. At the same time, uh, this book has come in a season of my life that has been critical. Uh, I, I shared with the elders uh, on Friday, last Friday, that the last year of my life has um, by far been the best. Um, the Lord and I are just incredibly intimate. Um, I'm having more fun in ministry. This is my 17th year of ministry. Um, having more fun in ministry than ever before. Feel more like a Christian and less like a pastor, and I love that. Um, and and it's, it's interesting how that's all interwoven in Exodus. And I think in large part, it's, it's, because, of, it's because of this. I showed you guys a map when we started uh, this journey and um, the teaching that went along with this map was that God takes his people the long way around. Uh, Google Maps, for instance, wouldn't choose this route. Their aiming point is top right. Their starting point there is you know around the middle left. Google Maps wouldn't suggest this route, right? Uh, this is by far not the easiest. Uh, by far not the closest. But for whatever reason, God takes his people the long way around. And um, I share with you guys that night, and this has been my experience through this whole book. Is this God deeply loves his people? And you remember, like, if he would have taken them the short way, he would have been leading them right through the land of the Philistines and all kinds of chaos and war. Instead, in his mercy, even though his people would have said it would be way easier if we traveled the shortest route, God in his grace said, No, I've got a better way, I've got a better plan. He loves his people. And I feel like in a very real way that I want to share with you, like I've just, I've just in my own personal life been encountering, let me say it this way. It's easy to say God is love and not believe it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's easy to tell your friends God loves you and in your heart not really receive it. And I'm just telling you, I've just been in a season of my life where I'm really receiving it. Where I read the words God is love and there's not anything in my heart that doubts that. And um, so tonight, we, way better than the movie, we will close Exodus. Um, there's a lot to share tonight, there's a lot to work through. And I fully recognize that many of you have missed several chapters. It's okay. Um, let's end an amazing journey through the book of Exodus. So open your Bibles to chapter 40. A lot of powerful text here, a lot of encouraging text, and uh, we have a lot of work to do, for sure. Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is like the 600th time he said this in Exodus, so why not close with another? I mean, he's always talking to Moses. On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. If you haven't been with us, what's been happening in very recent times is God has designed and now provided the means to build a place of worship for the Israelites in the desert, a place for God's presence to be housed, and there's been very specific, clear instructions on how to build it. And what God says to Moses is on the first day of the first month, which means it's now one year since they left Egypt, since the exodus began, okay, one year of time has gone by, you are going to uh, build this thing, so it's like their New Year celebration, uh, we're coming to a new year, 2015 is just around the corner, and uh, in, in our New Year's, it will, you know, look in a kind of a, a particular way, but in their New Year's, um, they're going to get to build this place of worship for the Lord, really cool, check out verse 3. And you shall, put in the, uh, you shall put in the ark of testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil, verse four, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And it's, it's as if God is, God's like calling Moses now to be the interior decorator, right? Uh, how many of you guys absolutely love interior uh, decorating and decor? Okay, how many of you guys? All right, several of you, okay. Um, if you're into that sort of thing, uh, there's a probable slant of creativity in your life, okay? Now, uh, we rehabbed this building in eight weeks. Two and a half years ago, uh, went to it over a summer, 21 dumpsters full. I mean, this place have been vacant seven years. or were dead animals, probably dead people here, and we, we cleaned it all out, okay? It was the old uh, St. Saint, uh, Saint Charles Police Station. Because things were happening so fast, and because I, I think I have a little bit of a creative eye, I charged myself with the a task of choosing the paint colors, okay? And uh, again, things were moving, so we're, what paint, you know, color should go here? And, you know, well, some, some things were easy. We weren't going to paint the ceiling white. We weren't going to paint the ceiling fuchsia. Black it is, okay? And, and so there were some easy decisions. And then were some, there were some others that, uh, that maybe weren't as easy, right? So I, I, was, I was standing in our front bathrooms, and, um, you know, I was looking around, and I was just like, you know you know what would be really awesome is dark brown like I I just I feel like our bathrooms need dark brown you know And, and so I hadn't thought it all the way through like I wasn't you know making all the associations um and and so uh so we we paint the bathrooms dark brown all of them mind you okay the same color and um I love Brandon and I's relationship. Uh, I've known Brandon since he was like almost in the womb, and uh, I, I think just because of uh, how close we are, he's he's just always very honest with me. Uh, he can speak the truth to me in love most of the time, and um, all the time. I'm just kidding. And, and so on, on the night of our launch here, that August, we're in the bathroom together, and don't don't ask why. We're you know we're <laughs> going to the bathroom, all right, for heaven's sakes. And uh, and so we're in there. I'm like. And he's like, "Hey, uh, hey, who chose this paint color?" And I'm like, well, "You know, so there's part of me that's like ready to and really excited to say that I am the one that has chosen this, but I can tell by the way that he's asking the question that he's definitely not a fan." I'm like, "I chose this this color," and he's like, "Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> like, like people come in this dark brown bathroom, ready to, you know, go to the bathroom." And their bowels are already moving because of the color scheme in here. Like, it's, this, is not, this is not helpful, right? Well, if you're an interior, by the way, we're, we're repainting all the bathrooms at the beginning of the year. So, uh, if any of you guys have any ideas, we're thinking bright pink at this point. Uh, you know, please, please uh, maybe a purple, maybe, a, you know, maybe maybe just black like the ceiling. I don't know. So, give us, give us some thoughts. Give us some thoughts. Um, when you are creative, there are successes and failures and I'm just, I'm just confessing my failure, I should not have chosen the color dark brown in all the bathrooms, right? That's my bad, shouldn't have done it. I think I did all right on the ceiling. The bathroom's not so much, okay? When you take creative liberty, you will succeed sometimes and you will fail. I love how God uh, calls Moses, commands Moses on how to set up the tabernacle and whether Moses is creative or not, he doesn't have to take liberty He gets the privilege of just submitting to God's creative design and allowing the great author of the story to write. I believe there's some creativity in all of us. And I believe that creative side, that lack of submissive side, uh, loves to tell God uh, where the lampstand should be, where our relationships should be structured, what school we should go to, what job we should pursue. And in our creativity and because of our selfish pursuits, then there will be successes and failures that are ultimately back on our shoulders. But when you submit to the deep, beautiful, loving God, you get the chances to listen to his voice and hear where the lampstand should go and hear where the table of the presence can go. And that's what he's telling Moses, do exactly as I told you. Verse 4, you shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. This is right before uh, the big curtain of the big veil going into the holy of holies and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Verse 6, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin, remember the basin that sits right as you're going into the tabernacle was where the priests would wash their hands uh, after they had made sacrifice because their hands were bloodied. Place the base, in verse 7, between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it, obviously. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. So he commands Moses, like a great interior decorator, to set up this tabernacle. It's time. All of the preparation is now ready to be set and to be placed. Then, look at this, verse 9. You shall take the anointing oil... And anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. My question for you is, have you ever done this with your furniture, okay? Have you ever anointed it with oil and consecrated it, right? Have you ever gone up to your room and you're like, okay, like I'd really, what would be really nice if we just kind of made all these things holy? You, you, know, you bought some oil from schnooks, right? And, and you, you know put it in a nice jar and you called it anointing oil and you just went kind of piece of furniture by piece of furniture. Well, it's tough to relate, right? Like that's not in our normal rhythm, okay? Um, what Moses does, though, is he gets the chance, the grace, as he's going piece by piece to celebrate the journey that God has had for them. And, and that's what I imagine. Old Grandpa Moses, 80 plus, going over to the table of the bread of the presence and anointing it with oil and thanking God that it's set apart for his glory. By the way, this all happened supposedly very quick in time. Like God's commanding him to do this quickly. First day, first month, like it's go time, bro. Put it together. Has it ever uh, struck you through our whole journey of Exodus that God has never given an excuse for Moses' age? Like remember when he was going up and down the mountain like it seemed like six times in a day? Hey, I know you're 80. Come on up. Don't worry about it, right? You can make... Break a hip, but it's okay. We'll figure it out. Put you on a stretcher, wheel you back down. Like, God, God never says, "Hey Moses, I know you're 80, but could you, you know, could you maybe you know do this or that." Like God never provides an excuse for His age, and I absolutely love that. I love that God never uh, even even like addresses His age, and then give Moses outs for it. Listen, some of you tonight need to directly hear this word. For whatever reason, you believe because of your, let's start with the youthfulness, that A, you have like time to get serious, that you have time to live like hell, because one day, you know, you'll all kind of piece it together. The general rhythm in America, thankfully, I don't believe in our body, but in America is, you know, you, uh, some folks grow up in the church or some don't, but then you go to college and you do whatever the, whatever the heck you want right? And then after college, hopefully a wife, maybe some kids will will get you serious about the faith. Like what in the world? I long for insanely strong 15, 16, 17. I believe in our body. We have unbelievably strong 18, 19, 20 year olds, not using their age for an excuse. Well, I'm I'm young, uh, one of my favorite scriptures is what Paul says to Timothy, his young disciple. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. Like, I tattooed this on my forehead when I was young. Like, I don't care how old anyone is. I was 13 years old going into my pastor's office, true story, with my Bible open saying, why aren't we preaching this? And if he said, but hey, you need to settle down, you're young. That would have just fueled my fire. I don't have to be young or old to be passionate about the Lord, somebody, right? So let me, let me say this on the other side, that those who are seasoned, okay, you may think, in, especially in the second service where you feel like you're you know, a little bit in an age range that isn't represented here, we celebrate you. If you have gray hair, we celebrate you, okay? Even if you're 25 and got some gray hair, still, we'll celebrate you and pray for more of you, right? But how many, listen, here's, here's my picture. I grew up in, in a very traditional church where the average age okay, was you know, probably 55, 60, right? A lot of blue hair, okay? It wasn't gray, it was blue, right? And I think often about if those 70 and 80 year olds really understood their calling to disciple others, how much more fun their life would have been. They were, they were making an excuse for their age in their mind or their heart, whatever. They're like, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of old and tired then go to your grave discipling. Like, go to your grave pouring into people. How beautiful would it be if at your funeral were all the people that you discipled, not your acquaintances? I don't want no acquaintances at my funeral. You know, like, what I want there, who I want there are people who I have invested in, people who have invested in me, Well, there's been this mutual sharing. Our age is not an excuse for the young here that have been tabling yourself because you're not as old as that person or you're not as gifted as that person. Stop using your age as an excuse. Old Man River Moses is 80 and getting used by God powerfully. Somebody, please, okay? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So verse nine, anoint some things, God says. Set apart some things. Make some things holy, verse 10. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and its utensils and consecrate the altar and so that the altar may become most holy. And that's what consecrate or holy means. It means set it apart. This is different. This furniture is to be used by God. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall, check this out, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Now, at first, this seems strange, right? So, so we're going like to bring some grown men and we're going to like, you know, like they're going to be going through like the car wash. You know, we're going to like wash them up, soaps and suds, you know, like shine the tires. like What, is, what does this look like? Well, these guys were going to be the priests. And so not just ritually that we'll see in, in ancient Judaism, but here as an initiation into the priesthood, there was a very uh, a profound image of cleansing. Then verse 13, put Aaron uh, in the holy garments. You guys remember this, like the high priestly garments, the ephod and the breastplate and the things that, you know, the big shoulder pads. I mean, just put the garments on the high priest and you shall anoint him, set him apart and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall also bring his sons, put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. Now listen, uh, what I love about the story of Exodus is how much doesn't seem like it affects us now and affects us at the core, okay? Um, in other words, this sets up a long lineage of failed and flawed priests. If you read through the Old Testament at all, what you're gonna learn is the priestly office is very broken. Okay, there are some boss priests. There are some priests that come in that are very devoted to the Lord, uh, very not corrupt, okay, not in the Jewish mob. They're, they're very focused on uh, following uh, the Lord in all aspects. And then there's some others that are killed by God, because of their disobedience that are uh, completely misdirecting the body. that's why when scripture says that he's Jesus is our high priest, it's amazing to think of all of these failed and flawed priests that were supposed to be making intercession between God and man, and then one does it for everyone. It's beautiful. It's another reason why we get to celebrate the Lord Jesus. Be easy to celebrate Aaron. Oh, cool. He gets some cool garments and he's gonna be the priest now. No. Aaron is yet another reason for us to celebrate Jesus. Incredible. And their anointing in the middle, verse 15, shall uh, admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. There's gonna be a lineage to the line of Levites, uh, the, the, the priestlyhood. Verse 16 sets up a whole new pattern. Look at this. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Do you guys remember this man? This is the man that was cussing God, okay, in the Hebrew, but, but cussing God. This is the man where God had called him, and, and Moses like, no way, heck no. You want to use me? Like a homeboy can't talk, not a good leader, and no, God, I'm not going to do this. And then he gets into it, and the people start screwing things up, and he goes back to God, hey, you better fix this, I'm out of here, these are your people, they're your problem. He goes from that to doing all that the Lord had commanded to him. So what has happened? Here's what I believe. Pre-Jesus, pre the constant infiltration of the Holy Spirit in his life, which you and I have access to now, pre all of that, Moses is aligning his life with the track record of God. So early in this relationship, he's questioning, he's doubting. He's seeing potential gaps and holes. But as his life moves on, as his journey moves on, as he watches God consistently be God, his doubts are fading away because God has built a phenomenal track record. Let me ask you this. What is it that's fueling the doubts in your heart? Um, If you're like me, there's been a moment at some point, maybe when the right song was playing, but probably in your car, okay? You're like driving down the road and, you know, people are passing you by and you're not texting, thankfully, and, you know, you're, you're thinking about things. Your radio's not jamming. Like, you're just, you're thinking about things. And the thought comes in your mind for one second. And the thought is, what if all of this is just a sham? Have you ever had that thought before? I have. Like Like, what if, what if God isn't real? What if, what if all of this is just to make us feel better about our eternity, like what if all of, well like, and just for a, a split second, like doubt arises. So here's what happens. Some of you deeply struggle with doubt because you haven't sat back and watched the track record of God around your life. So for those of us that have experienced the powerful, faithful track record of God in spite of our faithlessness, in moments like that, when doubts arise, they're quickly fleeting because they're instantly met with what God has done consistently in our life. Let me say it another way. If you're not reading his word, your life is gonna be filled with doubt. As a believer, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, if you're not connected to his word, of course you're gonna doubt because you cannot distinguish his voice. His word is his voice. And so if you're not in it, like how in the world are you going to decipher his voice from Oprah's? Or his voice from, you know, this heretical preacher? Or his voice from Lady Gaga, right? I mean, like how how can you decipher that? Bad example, okay? I don't know. She's kind of like last year, right? I don't know. Trying to be relevant. Here we go. Look at this, verse 17. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected one year after the Exodus. Now I want you to see a pattern. Moses erected, verse 18, the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, and put, it, uh, put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle. Again, I can't make this, you know, maybe he was leading others, but he was a part of this. He's 80, he's old, he's putting this thing together. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. Let's read this together. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Let's try it again. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 20. He took the testimony and put it in the ark. The testimony, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, puts it in the ark of the covenant and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. The mercy seat being where those two cherubim meet where God uh, said that his voice would speak. Verse 21, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony. Let's read it together, come on. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 22, he put the table in the tent of meeting, the table of the bread of the presence on the north side of the tabernacle, Outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, come on, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle in case you needed GPS and set up the lamps before the Lord, come on, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, come on, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar burnt offering, verse 29, the entrance of the tabernacle. The tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. I mean, over and over and over, he is precisely obeying God's command. And this is a man that has come from tremendous doubt and cussing God. If you think tonight that your heart cannot be changed, what a perfect place you're in. And you're like Mark, that like that's. That sounds heretical. If you think tonight, you walked in here believing that your heart cannot be changed, that you can't go from cussing God to submitting to God, your heart is in a perfect place. Why? Because think of the testimony that you'll have as God softens your heart, changes your heart, stirs your affection for him to go from cussing at him to submitting to him. And some of you know because that's your exact testimony. Some of you remember when you're like, no way, no way I'll ever worship the Lord like that dude. No, No way I'll ever love God like those people. I mean, no way I'll ever have faith in something I cannot see. And now look at you. Ransomed by the blood of Christ, saved and redeemed, and not just believing, but passionate about what God's doing, right? For those of you that think that your heart cannot be changed, Praise God for where he has you right now, and I pray that he would change it, and I pray in a radical way you would get to see God's glory in your life. I mean, Moses is precisely submitting to God. Verse 30, it goes on, he said, the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, of course, thank you, with which Moses and Aaron and his son washed their hands, and not just their hands, but their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed. Last time, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle on the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Unbelievable moment in the text. He finished. He finished. We're phenomenal starters. Phenomenal. Uh, vision is like wildfire in our heart. Assume, like you've come home, right? you're like, all right, so uh, this week, like I'm gonna start a new diet regiment. And so here's my plan. I'm gonna drink water and eat, uh, eat, uh, you know, what do they call those little crackers? Uh, wheat thins. I'm gonna eat water, I'm gonna drink water and eat wheat thins. I'm gonna go to the gym every day at 3 a.m., Right? And I'm going to work, work out for six hours. I'm going to pump some iron. I'm probably going to lose 65 pounds in a month. And then, right? Okay, go. And so the first day, I mean, you come out of the gate. You're there at 250, right? You're there at 250. It's just you in the whole gym. And, I mean, you're moving around the machines, you know, you're, Gene Simmons. I mean, you're, you're sweating in the oldies. You're, you're going at it, right? You're going at it. And then the next day, about 2.45, you look at your watch, you're like, nah. You know, I, like, I got to let my muscles breathe a little bit. You know, like, I, I can't. And then pretty soon, Wednesday comes and Thursday comes, and your whole diet plan had it one great day. One great day. We are amazing starters. Think about all the things in your life that you have started and not finished. Why? Because vision or change or newness is very luring. And so because of that, like we can get out of the gate hot, like in a horse race, like when the thing comes up and we come out blazing, but give us a day or two or a week or a month. That's why I hear at Matthias, one of our greatest dangers is beginning discipling relationships. And I hear often them fizzling. Why? Because we're great starters and not great finishers. But, but what is a race if all you can do is start it? I, for one, am tired of starting. And many of you are confused about what even race you're starting in because that's what you spend your life doing, starting something and never finishing it, never seeing it through. Listen, I love what my parents taught me. One of the things that they always taught me, and then I've tried to empower my kids with this, is like, we don't quit. We don't quit. So I've like worked in this little chant, with my kids and uh, it's kind of funny so I say like who are we and my kids will say the Sigmas. right we'll all, like, and then I'll say how do we treat people and they say with love and respect and then I'll say and we never and they all like put their brave heart fists and the rock fist in the air and we never quit you know and we all like pounded up team Sigma, you know we're ready to go ready <laughs> to take on the world ready to charge hell you know That's what Dawson said last time. Dad, let's charge hell! You know, I'm like, I don't know if that's (laughs) appropriate. Like, you know. It's not charge. Um, I love that they taught me not to quit. My parents did. Why? Because I want to see things through. I want to see things through. Listen, some of you right now, here tonight, right now in this very second, you absolutely have to repent of your inability to finish. Now, here's what happens. Oftentimes, when you cannot finish, the whole principle of the race is built on self sustainment. In other words, you begin because you believe you can. And then, when the first obstacle comes in your tiredness, your laziness, your whatever you throw in the towel because. There's no reliance on anything outside yourself. Um, many of you guys have heard my story. I mean, I was with my grandfather as he was dying and the words that I shared with him were straight from Paul who said, I have fought the good fight, I finished the race. And I had the chance to look at my grandpa in his last seconds and say, you have finished the race. You finished. You didn't just start, you ended well. So I'm deeply encouraged by the fact that Moses has been on quite a journey Up and down, strong doubts, strong faith. And in the building of this place of worship that would house the glory of God, he finishes. It's incredible. So, the next subtitle to end Exodus 40 says, The Glory of the Lord. Enter epic fanfare, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the cloud, and the glory of the Lord. Filled the tabernacle. Well, where did we last see the cloud? Come on, where did we last see the, crowd? the cloud? On the top of the mountain, right? The cloud representing God's presence. Now it's come down from the mountain and it's all up in the tabernacle. Maybe, maybe, one of the most significant moments in all of Exodus. Here's why. Moses prayed to God. We do not want to go unless you're going with us. He pleaded that God would not abandon them. He pleaded that Moses' presence or that God's presence would be with them. And now, what do all the people get to see? He's there. He's answered their prayer. I haven't abandoned you. Some of you have been unfaithful. 3,000 of you have been killed. You've been on quite a journey. You've doubted me all the time, and yet I've remained faithful when you're faithless. His presence is seen, and all of the nation of Israel had to be celebrating in their heart because their prayers were answered. God didn't abandon them. His presence was seen physically, And then verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even go in. And this dude's experienced like the very premise of God's glory. Uh, Throughout all this chapter, like I have all these previous stories of Moses coming out of my mind. And and one of them here is, is, remember one of his first interactions with God at the burning bush? And remember what God asked Moses to do? Right, take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. Like, I wonder if this was, if he's like cycling back to when God had first called him and they began to speak, and the glory of God, the holiness of God just outpouring. Verse 36 throughout all their journeys, the scripture says, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. In other words, the cloud or God's presence was directing them, was guiding them. But if the cloud was not taking up, then they did not set out until uh, the day that it was taken up. They were waiting on God. And finally, the last verse of Exodus For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and hello, fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. In a very practical, real, visible sense, God's presence was known to the people of Israel. So the next question is what happens now? because many of you guys have never studied Exodus. And so you're like, okay, so like, what, what, what happens? Like, do they all die? Does Moses, you know, like go up into glory? Like, does like, he become a superhero? What happens in this story? So I wanna show you four things that really summarize how the Israelites continue their journey. The first is this, the adult Israelites who were in Egypt and a part of the Exodus will not go into the promised land. So every slave who God had redeemed, every adult, will not go into the promised land. Here's why, the scripture that supports it. Numbers chapter 14. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, graced, mercyed, according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Here's what happens. They get to the edge of the promised land and they send spies in to check it out. How many of you guys know the story? There's two, Joshua and Caleb, that come back and say, let's go. And every other spot is like, ah, man, I don't, there's some people that look pretty powerful. I don't know that we can overtake them. And God's like, listen, ha- I've been guiding you. And now we're right here at the precipice of the promised land. Say that three times. And I'm going to empower you to overtake it. Joshua and Caleb say, let's go. The rest say no. And the people are swayed by them. And so because of that, because of their disobedience, lack of faith, every adult does not get to go into the promised land. They all die in the wilderness. Crazy. The second thing that happens, Moses and Aaron will not go into the promised land. What? That that would have been like the perfect ending. Moses leads from 80 years old to he's 120. All these people, they get to the promised land, you know, and everyone's happy and merry forevermore. So so what happens? Here's the story that uh, tells us Numbers chapter 14, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Here's, here's the problem: there's no water again. And so Moses and Aaron are trying to figure out what to do. And he said to them, Does Moses to the people, hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So you get the image that, like Moses kind of sticks out his chest a little bit. You know, he's like, Hear now, you rebels, you know. And he's like, Should I just like make water come? He's like all of a sudden turns into a magician. Doesn't mention God's name, doesn't mention God's providence, okay? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Here's why this is naughty. God said, just speak to it. And instead, he takes his staff and like does a, you know, does a double take on it. So God says, speak. Moses slams his staff down and water comes out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. But, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses and Aaron do not get to go in. Aaron dies pretty quick after that. He gone. Moses gets to live a little bit longer. And remember, these dudes are about the same age. Okay, So Aaron's dead. Soon after this, Moses lives a little bit longer. In fact, the next piece has to do with Moses. He gets to see it. He doesn't get to go in, but he gets to see the promised land. 40 years worth of journey, and he gets to visualize it. Here's what God says. Deuteronomy 32. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses for the thousandth time. Go up this mountain of Abraham, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. It's like 16 different directions. And look at this. And view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. Could you guys imagine that moment? I mean, you've been like watching these people, guiding these people, and you know, you're super old and he climbs up the mountain and he just gets to see what God will eventually give to all the descendants after him. Even though he was a massive huge part of it. I wonder what was going through his mind and his heart. Um, sin has consequences, my friends. God's grace and his mercy are shown in that he will stay true to his covenant, to his promise. He'll give the people the land. He told Abraham he would way long ago. But it doesn't mean that sin doesn't have consequences. You're forgiven, my friends, for your pornography struggles, for your eating disorders, for your pre- premarital sex, for your alcohol consumption you're forgiven for all those things and your gossiping and your judgment and your lack of love and your hatred forgiven by the blood of Christ but it does not mean that those things will not have consequences i know sometimes that we can take the grace of god for granted paul wrote about it should we go on sinning so grace may increase by no means why because sin has consequences God in his grace as a great parent is guiding us into the right way to live so that we don't bear those consequences. But when we step out on our own, like many of you have, you're not dealing with years and years worth of consequences. God can take the porn images out of your head for sure. But if you want to try him and test him, you might spend the rest of your life because of your addiction now trying to get those out of your mind. Sin has consequences. And on and on and on. And Moses... Sits on top of this mountain and is reminded, Man, God is gracious, and my sin has consequences. So, what happens next? He dies. And I would say, like, not epically, he just dies. Here's a scripture that talks about it. And the Lord said to him, This is kind of weird. This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I just talked about that. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, I love his title, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Their last interaction on this earth is God saying, you can see it, you can't go in. And then Moses dies. Really interesting here. Look at, look at this. Uh, he was buried in the valley, verse 6, in the land of Moab opposite Beth Pear, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old. <clears throat> I was listening to this. I was teaching my kids, Dawson is obsessed with death right now for whatever reason. Uh, it's true. And uh, last time I was teaching them when Moses dies and that he was 120. And he gets like super hopeful. He's like, Dad. Does that mean you're gonna like are you gonna be 120? I'm like, no, you know. He he seriously asks me every day. He's like, So dad, when I'm 95, how old are you gonna be? And Maddox has learned, he's gonna be in heaven, Dawson, you know. <laughs> but he'll ask again, no, Dad, when I'm dad, when I'm 99, because he's learning his numbers right now, Dad, when I'm 99, and Maddox is like, Dawson, he's gonna be in heaven, you know? He'll even go back. Like, he'll be like, Dad, when I'm 30, Maddox is like, he's going to be in heaven. I'm like, give me a little bit of, seriously? (laughs) Moses was 120 years old when he died. Look at this. Unbelievable moment in the scripture. Look at this. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. How's that for a tombstone? His eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. So the question is, what does that mean? My interpretation is his body was fine. His health was okay. He could see. He still had passion. He still had vigor, which tells you what. God said, your time is done. Natural causes, death. I need to get all my people in the land. Now, you want to see how the people respond? Check this out. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Now, certainly there's a relational side to this. I've lost close friends of mine, close family members. Many of you had as well. It is very difficult in the face of death not to weep. So there's certainly a relational component to this, but there's also a cultural. In the ancient Near East, and the, even to this day, many cultures, there's like a period of time of mourning and weeping. We're very different in that way. Many cultures, and in ancient Near East, in, in, uh, for the Israelites, 30 days. For a leader, they wept, they mourned. And then after 30 days, he, he hadn't resurrected, he still was dead, and, and so the... They moved on. And in this case, Joshua took over. The people weep. As I was reading this, it was a passage that came to mind. I want to share that to you. John chapter 19. This is on Sunday morning. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene. She shows up, on, shows up on Sunday morning. She's come to um, see the body of Jesus. And like many of us respond to death, she's weeping, she's crying. Now, this is the passage that came to my mind. What I did not expect was that I would see this next text. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet, and they said to her, look at this, woman, why are you weeping? Now, I think you'd agree with me, there's a lot of conversational points, that, like this could have went a lot of different directions. The angels could have said a lot of different things, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they asked her why she was crying. It doesn't seem compassionate, does it? They're Like, have some compassion. like, The woman, like... Seriously, if you were at a funeral and someone had died that was a friend of yours, and someone came up and they said, "Why are you crying?" What would you do? You'd like punch him in the face, right? Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Why am I crying? But look at this. Having said this, verse fourteen, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it was uh, that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Have you ever seen this before?" So I start thinking about Moses and the mourning over his death. And then the scripture about Mary Magdalene pops in my mind as a woman who was weeping over the death of of Jesus. And I never noticed before that the two questions that both the angels and Jesus ask her are, why are you crying? And so I sat in my study and I tried to figure out, like, why would they say that? And this is why. they would say, why are you weeping? Because Moses dies and Jesus lives. Because in that precise moment in time, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the longing of all of creation for sin to be redeemed was realized. And so in that moment, in the history that you and I now get to look back on, the question, why are you weeping, seems insanely appropriate. And then, as I sat in that reality, can I share another piece of text for you? Here's what Revelation 21 says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, this is talking about the return of the Lord Jesus, and when the Christ takes his church, and the promise is he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And the image that I have in my mind is not a Kleenex or a tissue or a hope so, it's the literal hand of a great loving God who looks at his children and says, why are you weeping? There's no need to cry. I'm gonna wipe away those tears and remind you that because I live now, you live too, forever in my presence. Never apart from me forever in intimacy with me. That's why the story of Exodus is about Easter. It's about the resurrection. Joshua is too. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis, all of it. Whether the scripture is waiting on the resurrection or looking back on it or experiencing it, this is our life, church. Our life, my friends. We become people. Who believe Moses dies, Jesus lives, and because of that, every passage in the scripture is breathing life into people, is breathing hope. And I know for sure that some of you absolutely desperately need to hear this tonight. Because you cannot imagine a day because the pain's too much. You cannot imagine a day where there'll be no more crying because right now you're sitting so intensely in your pain. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the death of a man who seems heroic in the scripture is that Jesus is the better Moses. Moses seems obedient, but he dies. And our Christ for three days is in the grave and then on his own accord for the glory of God walks out so that you and I could sit in this room and say then, what in the world are we doing living like we're dead? Can we celebrate life tonight, church? Life amidst the pain. Life amidst the struggle. Life amidst the confusion. What if tonight we celebrated the hope that we have and the true understanding of the gospel? Was on the elders' hearts tonight to get a chance to celebrate life in Christ with you. We have four pastors here and just on on all of our hearts tonight to serve you, to love you, and to celebrate the life that Christ has given us. And so tonight as you respond, just take a piece of this bread. And pull it off in celebration of the body of Christ that's been broken for you. And then dip it in the cup. Remembering the night where Jesus held the cup in front of his disciples and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink in remembrance of me. I walk away from Exodus and I believe now more than ever before that my God is alive. And so tonight, it's Easter. Let's celebrate the life that we have in Christ tonight, church. Respond when you're ready.